Like the greatest of books, The Christmas Story has a backstory. And once you hear it, you'll never read about Christmas quite the same. Coming up, Dr. Bob Moeller joins us in the studio. And speaking of great stories, Charlie Dyer's devotional recalls a tale of two cities. Plus, we'll bring you all the headlines out of the Middle East and tackle some intriguing listener questions. With that, we welcome you to The Land and the Book. Our expert is Charlie Dyer. Our learner is John Geiger. And you know, Charlie, the new year really is quickly approaching. Before you know it, 2023 is going to be here. And you have to ask yourself, what do you want your priorities to be for the coming year? Maybe, like me, you'd like a reminder to pray? I agree, John. And that's why our friends at Life and Messiah are offering a 2023 prayer calendar to Land in the Book listeners. Each month displays a beautiful image relating to an aspect of Jewish life and a point of prayer for that month. All the major Jewish holidays scattered throughout the year are also highlighted. The calendar will be a daily reminder for you to pray for the Jewish people and Life in Messiah's ministry. Now, if you'd like one of these artistic calendars for yourself or as a gift for someone else, visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button to find out how you can receive your calendar. That's lifeinmessiah.org. All right. Thank you, Charlie. And, you know, if you're a regular listener, you know that last week, Charlie and I had a conversation based around his new book, Experiencing the Land of the Book from Moody Publishers. And uh, we had five copies to give away, and we invited folks to tell us, hey, what's the number one spot you'd like to visit in Israel if you could go? And we were overwhelmed, Charlie. Set a new record, in fact, with more than 140 responses, and they're still trickling in, I think. We were able to choose those five lucky winners, and by now, everybody has gotten an email from us, whether you won or whether you didn't win, you can, of course, access that book anytime at Moody Publishers. There's a link at our website, by the way, to Moody Publishers. If you go to thelandandthebook.org, thelandandthebook.org, we're hoping to get a a snapshot of that book cover on our own website as well. But it's available from uh, Moody Publishers. Again, experiencing the land of the book. Well, Charlie, in spite of his victory in Israel's election, Netanyahu faced several challenges in his efforts to form a government. What were the main stumbling blocks in organizing his coalition, and is this new coalition even stable enough to get stuff done? You know, John, even as we're recording, it's still a work in progress. Now, the main obstacle that Netanyahu found in forming a government were the demands from the different far-right Zionist parties, especially Bezalel Smotrich and his religious Zionist party. Three parties ran together as one unit, and they received a total of 14 seats in the Knesset. But once they made it into the Knesset, the three split apart again. Now, it doesn't signal a division between them. Rather, it's a way to have each party gain some parliamentary advantages. The main issue in the negotiations focused on who would control specific ministries. Sensing their importance to Netanyahu's government, these parties demanded control of ministries like defense and finance. They also wanted to push for legalization to make Israel more of a Jewish religious state. Uh, Things like banning all public transportation on the Sabbath and only allowing Orthodox conversion to Judaism. And Netanyahu's goal was always to form a right-wing government, but in a way that doesn't bring international condemnation or create unnecessary conflict with secular Israelis or Israeli Arabs. And he also didn't want to antagonize the Palestinians and create a greater security problem, especially when faced with a potential conflict with Iran. Well, as it's turning out, his party... The Likud party will probably be the most, quote, liberal of the parties in this coalition. And he still hasn't officially gotten everyone to sign on, though that probably will happen uh, very shortly. 
Now, for a stable government to be formed, each coalition partner is going to need to accept the reality that they're not going to get everything they demand. If they push too hard, the coalition will fracture, and the opposition to the coalition will be fierce. One of Netanyahu's former defense ministers described the impending coalition this way. He said, you did not receive a mandate to forsake our security by handing it over to pyromaniacs who support Jewish terrorism, who hurt the IDF and its commanders. Hmm. Another general added that if these far-right parties implement their own ideology, he said, I expect a major disaster. Now there's talk among the opposition, especially in secular areas of Israel, of openly defying the new government. Wow. And that could prove disastrous. Remember back, John, history is a good lesson for us. In the U.S. Civil War, President Lincoln quoted from Jesus' words in Matthew 12, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And those words might be true of the deep divide now facing Israel, even as this new government gets ready to start functioning. Well, reports from both U.S. and Israeli security forces suggest the Palestinian Authority is in danger of collapse. Are these reports accurate, or is this just a case of someone crying wolf trying to stir up trouble? Yeah, and we've talked about this somewhat before, but apparently, at least the the threat level right now is increasing, especially as 87-year-old President Abbas comes up on the 18th year of his four-year term as president of the Palestinian (laughs) Authority. Now, three major issues are causing the concern right now, though. The first was a recent unauthorized release of a classified report done by the Palestinians on the 1984 death of Yasser Arafat. It suggested Arafat was poisoned by someone from within his own staff. And it also stated that Arafat had reached out to Abbas for help to get the Israeli siege of his compound lifted, but had instead been told by Abbas at that time, he who gets himself into problems will know how to get out of them. In other words, I'm not helping you, buddy. Uh, Now, the suggestion is that that report, which was kept confidential to protect Abbas, has now been released in an attempt to further turn public opinion against him. Uh, The second issue right now causing this rising level of concern is Palestinian violence and terrorism. Israel's Shin Bet has warned Netanyahu that the deterioration of the security situation could also cause this Palestinian Authority government to collapse. They were already losing control over parts of the West Bank before the recent spate of violence. New terror organizations like Lion's Den are challenging the Palestinian Authority. Now, they're composed of young people who don't remember the Second Intifada or its consequences and who also seem to have easy access to weapons these days. The third part of the problem, as if those two aren't enough, is the rise of the far-right members of the Knesset who've made inflammatory statements against the Palestinians. They're now making the situation even more volatile. Now, all of this to say, John, this definitely isn't a case of someone simply crying wolf. A problem does exist, and the new government has to find a way to quell the violence without harming innocent civilians or disrupting the lives of those on both sides who just want to live in peace and security. If you just joined us, you're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Our host is Dr. Charlie Dyer, a guy who's traveled to the Holy Land more than a 100 times. He's constantly reading, learning, and sharing it all with us. We're working our way through a list of current event stories here on the program. Well, an Israeli professor of archaeology has made the rather astounding claim that there is no historical or archaeological evidence for the existence of ancient Judeans, either in the Holy Land or in the Diaspora until the 2nd century B.C. Now, Charlie, on what in the world does he base this claim, and could this even possibly be true? Well, this is a case where a professor has overstated his case, and those reporting on it 
have made sensational headlines without uh, really explaining all the details. You really need to go beyond the headlines to understand what he's claiming. He actually said there's no archaeological or historical evidence that the ancient Judeans observed or even knew about the Mosaic Law until the 2nd century B.C. Now, he does admit, he says what he calls the principles of Judaism are there, and they were older, but he would say most people back then didn't even know they existed, and they certainly weren't observing them. And he's limited his search to the time after the Babylonian captivity because he says most scholars agree that the religion practiced during the first temple period was far removed from Judaism as it's known today. Now, in one sense, that's true, but I think he made two fundamental errors. First, he ignores the Old Testament itself, which is a primary historical source. And second, he assumes the Judaism practiced at the time of the second temple has to be the standard against which everything else must be measured. The Bible very clearly reveals that ancient Israelites constantly struggled with disobeying God's word and going into idolatry. The fact that they failed to follow God's law isn't the same as saying that God's law didn't exist. And the Pharisaic form of Judaism practiced at the time of the second temple, well, that was condemned by Jesus. He said many of those traditions had nullified God's original commands. But back to that headline, is there any evidence that the people of Israel and Judah existed and had God's word? Absolutely. Archaeological finds that match the Bible continue to be discovered. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, are copies of documents that must have existed prior to the second century BC, since they were actually copies of those earlier documents. Uh, an amulet found at the Ketef Hinnom excavations from the first temple period quotes the Aaronic benediction from number six. You know, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you. Uh, so it's true the people of ancient Israel often didn't follow God's commands, and certainly evidence of idolatry has clearly been found, but that's exactly what the Bible said was taking place. So here's the bottom line for everyone. It's true that synagogues, ritual baths, other elements of first century Judaism developed later, but that doesn't mean the Israelites or the Word of God didn't exist before that. It's a case where a scholar built a theory based on negative evidence while choosing to ignore the very positive evidence found in the Bible and in archaeology and in historical documents like the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Charlie, real quickly, we're hearing that weaponized wild boars are being used by Israel against the Palestinians. At least that's a claim in the Palestinian press. What's the reality here? Yeah, the truth is that wild boars have always been a problem in that region. In fact, back in 1943, five years before the beginning of the state of Israel, there was a survey done that estimated there were about 12,000 wild boars in what was then called Palestine. Uh, the problem is wild boars, like modern pigs, they produce a lot of piglets at one time. In both Palestinian areas and Israel, they do have a wild boar problem, and it was made worse by the COVID epidemic. Now, the solution for this isn't to point fingers at one another, it's to work together. Unfortunately, getting the Palestinians and Israelis to work together is easier said than done. There you have it. We've gone whole hog bringing you the current events stories this week. Up next on The Land of the Book, Dr. Bob Moeller with the story behind the story of Christmas. Most everybody's heard the Christmas story, right? Mary, Joseph, the manger, shepherds in the field, angels in the sky, and of course, baby Jesus. What if I told you that story begins much earlier than we typically think? It's a story that goes all the way back to, well, I need to save that for our guest today. Dr. Bob Moeller is host of a weekly nationally broadcast television call-in show 
Marriage, for better or for worse. A frequent radio guest, he conducts weekend marriage conferences and is the author of 10 books on marriage, two of which were nominated for the Gold Medallion Award. He's written more than 150 articles for publications, including Focus on the Family and Marriage Partnership. Bob and his wife Cheryl have six children, nine energetic grandchildren. Uh, They have founded For Better, For Worse, For Keeps Ministries, a powerful ministry focused on healing hearts and marriages, especially in under-resourced areas. I love that about them. Uh, Their latest book, endorsed by Dr. Gary Chapman, is The Six Hearts of Intimacy. It's been too long since we've connected with you on the land in the book, Bob. Thank you much, John. I'm delighted to be back. Well, Bob, you're suggesting that the Christmas story goes back much further than we typically think? Well, yes. The story of the miracle in Christmas, the night Jesus Christ was born, is well known to us. But did you know that the drama had, much like popular movies today, a a prequel episode? Huh. It occurs nearly 1,000 years before the birth of Christ, somewhere between 1160 or 1100 B.C. in the ancient village of Bethlehem. And, John, this, this amazing story foreshadows the astounding events that will occur a millennium later. Yet all the essential elements of the Christmas drama of salvation are present. And what I'm talking about is the small book of Ruth. Wow. Well, that's quite a connection to go all the way back to Ruth. Uh, Elaborate just a bit there. Well, Bethlehem means uh, the house of bread, and its origins in the scripture far predate the location where uh, the shepherds came to worship Jesus on the night of his birth. We go back to the time uh, a thousand years earlier when um, Israel had just was still living in the period of the judges. They didn't have a king at that point. And in Bethlehem, there was a man by the name of Elimelech. And his name, John, it's interesting, in Hebrew means God is king. So in his life, God was king, and he was married to a wonderful woman by the name of Naomi, which, depending on who you read, can mean pleasant or the lovable or even my delight. So here's a picture of a happy home. Yeah, God is king, and their relationship, their marriage is delightful. But a famine strikes the land, a time of testing. And rather than remaining in Bethlehem, Elimelech makes this unfortunate, disturbing choice to leave the land of promise and covenant and go next door to Moab. Moab, unfortunately, was a land that was under a curse by God. For one thing, Moab had been the place where Lot and his daughters fled to after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. They went to the plains of Moab. And unfortunately, uh, sadly, this incestuous relationship that the daughters concoct in order to get uh, children uh, leads to children being born from their father, from Lot. And so that, forbidden by Scripture, is one strike against the land. But then when Moses and the people come in the Exodus and they're on their way to Canaan, they ask for the permission to go through Moab. They're not going to conquer it. They're not going to attack it because of the relationship to Lot and Abraham. They're, they're not going to destroy it. But instead, the king, Balak, summons a prophet, Balaam, to utter a curse upon the people. And you remember the story of Balaam and his donkey and yes. how uh, three times he tried to curse the people but wasn't allowed to. But that earns God's wrath toward uh, Moab again. So this was not a place for a godly, obedient, righteous, 
Jewish family to move to, to Moab. Yeah, and, and on top of that, his two sons marry foreign women. These are Moabite women, forbidden under the Mosaic law. And so let's fast forward. Both of those sons die. So now Naomi herself is a widow. Yes. Her two, her two daughters-in-law are widows. It's a household of widows. It's a very sad story. Elimelech dies, and then the two sons, Malon and Kilion. And Malon, John, in Hebrew means sickness, and Kilion means destruction. Hmm. So you get this sense that this was the judgment of God upon them for forsaking uh, his land and going to a forbidden territory. Bob, you're going to forgive me for jumping in when I say it doesn't feel real Christmassy right now. I'm, I'm, (laughs) I'm just not feeling it. No, except that Christmas occurs at a time of great... Uh, darkness in the world. Yes. Um, The Romans occupy Israel. It's been 400 years since the last prophet has spoken. The Jewish people are living under a real sense of oppression and wondering when again will God come to save his people. In a sense, they feel under judgment at this point. At least things are darkness. Uh, What does the scripture say? Those who have lived in darkness have seen a great light. You know, one of the scriptures of Christmas. Well, the three widows now have a decision to make. What are we going to do? Are we going to stay here and try and survive? But at this point, I think God has moved in Naomi's heart to return to the land of her birth, to Bethlehem. And she urges her daughters to go back to their people because they're from Moab. And that's when this beautiful statement from Ruth, who says to her mother-in-law, I'm not going to leave you. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to forsake you. You're old. You're vulnerable. I am devoted to you. And you have taught me about the God of your your fathers, and I want to go with you. In fact, uh, the King James has the best translation, yeah, at yeah, least yeah. poetically, doesn't it? Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whether thou goest, I will go, and whether thou lodgest, I will lodge. And thy people shall be my people, and their God be my God. John, now we're starting to see the mercy of God enter into this bleak picture. That Ruth, and by the way, her name can mean kind neighbor, friend, companion. It can also mean vision or view. Here is this Moabite woman. Her kindness has a vision or view to return to Israel and to know the true God of Israel. And so the two women return to Bethlehem just as the harvest is occurring, maybe symbolically a picture of the fullness of time, God's perfect timing. The harvest is beginning And by God's providence, he leads Ruth to the field of Boaz. This man's name means Tower of Strength, Hmm. where she is cared for, accepted, and sustained by the mercy of Boaz. We're starting to get a picture of the mercy of God being extended. In fact, I find it just very uh, fascinating that he offers to Ruth to come and have lunch. He invites Ruth, this foreigner, to his table where he serves her bread and wine. Hmm. And there's almost a symbolism of the Last Supper. There's almost a symbolism of later when Jesus will offer people uh, the bread and the wine of his body. Well, Boaz, it turns out, is the kinsman redeemer in Old Testament law. The kinsman redeemer, according to the law of Moses, had the privilege and duty to act on behalf of a relative that is in danger, trouble, or need, according Mm -hmm. to one dictionary. Bob, I got I to gotta hold you right there. I mean, isn't that a lovely picture of Jesus? It that, is. That, that phrase you just used, that, that one in trouble, that one in need. Yes. And um, the name of kinsman redeemer means uh, one who rescues or delivers. Huh. And the name Yeshua or Jesus means rescuer, deliverer, savior. 
So there's a, a real, now we're starting to see a typology, we're starting to see a foreshadowing of the work of our Savior. It feels just a bit like the Christmas story as, yes. we, as we talk with Bob Moeller, who along with his wife have founded For Better, For Worse, For Keeps Ministries. Bob has written 10 books on marriage, and uh, we're, we're talking today about the backstory of Christmas here on The Land and the Book. It goes all the way back about a thousand years or so earlier than the one we normally think of. Back to you, and Bob. John. Quite quickly, that love affair develops. She asks him if he will be her kinsman redeemer, meaning will he marry her? Will he redeem the property for uh, her lost husband? Um, Boaz goes to the city gate, offers the person closest to them that right, but he turns them down. Boaz and Boaz alone is the only one who can redeem this family. Mm. And there again is a picture of Jesus. There is no one else who can redeem us. Yes. There's no one who can purchase us. There's no one who can restore all that sin and death have taken from us. It's a beautiful picture of a kinsman redeemer. And he bestows on her and her mother-in-law many gifts and cares for them. And ultimately, he chooses her as his bride, a picture of Jesus coming to choose the church as his bride. Mm. Again, such interesting parallelisms here. And so there's a celebration. There's a wedding. The kinsman redeemer and the foreigner are married. There's a great joy in the community, a picture of redemption, salvation, celebration, as Christ and his bride are joined. Together, they will eventually bear a son named Obed, which means to serve. Mm -hmm. And so um, those born to that are servants of the Lord. He becomes the grandfather of David, the great king, who will ultimately be the ancestor of Jesus. And so Ruth enters the line of salvation, Mm -hmm. uh, the whole ancestry of Christ. And she joins two other foreigners. Remember, Rahab and Tamar are both Canaanites, Mm. and they are linked in the ancestry of Jesus as well. And what's the message here, John? Jesus came not just to save the Jew, but the Gentile. His birth, his salvation, his redemption. He's the kinsman redeemer of us all who's come to not just simply restore the nation of Israel to himself, but all of humanity. Dr. Bob Moeller, our guest today on The Land and the Book, we're talking about the backstory of Christmas. Let's talk about some takeaways from this story that relate to the Christmas story that relate to our story, maybe. Well, Jesus described himself as the bread of heaven, didn't he? And he's born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. And it's there that Boaz has offered bread and wine as well. Bethlehem's a city of destiny, John, where God will act to save us all who have wandered from him and found ourselves under the curse of sin. It's a city of destiny where God interrupts history in his providence, his kindness, his mercy, his grace. We have, second takeaway, we have no hope or future before us except that we return to the true God and seek his mercy and forgiveness. Those three widows had no hope, but by returning to the God of the universe, the God, their creator, in humility, in seeking his help, they're accepted. Jesus sees our helpless condition. He showers us with unearned grace. He invites us to draw near to him. Beautiful. He hears and responds to our requests, to our needs, to our cries. He willingly sacrifices of himself to buy us back and redeem us from our place of spiritual curse and famine. And he brings us into an eternal saving relationship with himself that cannot be broken. 
All this happens in Bethlehem. And just in closing, I would ask listeners today, are you living in Moab? Have you found yourself separated from God? Have you found yourself feeling like I'm living under a curse? Yeah. You can come to Jesus. You can come seek our kinsman redeemer. You can find his redemption. He wants to buy you back. He already has through the cross of Christ. And this Christmas, let Bethlehem be a reminder of simply how much God loves you, how much he sees the condition you're in or what you struggle with, and he has an answer, and it is himself. Bob, somebody listening right now says, I, I'm relating to this. This is me. I, I, I want to do this. What do I say? What do I pray? Could you lead them in a brief prayer? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you see us in our sin, our hopelessness, our alienation, even the curse we feel on our lives. Thank you that you're willing to forgive us. We confess our sins. We repent of all the choices we've made that have taken us far from you. We turn to Jesus, the one you sent in the world to redeem and save us. Lord, we place our faith in him today, in his finished work in the cross. He said it is paid, meaning he has paid for our sins and he can purchase us as a people for himself. Lord, this very moment we receive this gift with thanksgiving. We praise you for the gift of eternal life, that we are members of your church by faith. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. And we invite you to visit our website, thelandandthebook.org, where you can learn more about receiving Christ and growing in him. There's a link there at the website. You'll find it at thelandandthebook.org. Bob, thank you for stopping by. You're welcome. It was fun going back to the backstory of Christmas and getting those details. Up next, it's Charlie Dyer, and he's got a fresh set of Bible questions that I'm sure is going to intrigue you. It always does me. Stick around for more here on The Land and the Book. Welcome back to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Our host is an Old Testament scholar, Dr. Charlie Dyer. He's been to the Holy Land more than 100 times. And uh, I'm John Gager, always glad to connect with you and always intrigued with your questions, which is what this third segment is all about. Right, Charlie? Uh, That's right, John. And uh, I get excited when I hear the questions. Uh, They are fascinating. They cover the waterfront, and they sure keep me close to the Word of God to find answers. Well, before we get to our first question, it's time to think through the fact that the new year is quickly approaching. And before you know it, 2023 will be upon us. What do you want your priorities to be for this coming year? And would you like a reminder to pray? Well, our friends at Life and Messiah are offering a 2023 prayer calendar to Land in the Book listeners. Each month displays a beautiful image related to an aspect of Jewish life and a point of prayer for that month. All the major Jewish holidays scattered throughout the year are also highlighted. This calendar will be a daily reminder for you to pray for the Jewish people and Life and Messiah's ministry. If you'd like one of these artistic calendars for yourself or as a gift for someone else, visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button to find out how you can receive your calendar. That's lifeinmessiah.org. All right, ready to dive into today's questions. We'll start with Rogers. Why doesn't the church at large understand or at least talk as much about Jesus' fulfillment of the fall feasts as we do about his fulfillment of the spring feasts? It seems that Jesus fulfilled things to the letter, to the very day, with Passover, First Fruits, and Pentecost. So shouldn't we expect the same with the other feasts? 
Yeah, uh, I'll start this way and say I do believe the fall feasts are prophetic pictures that look toward the second coming of the Messiah, and they're going to be fulfilled at the time of the second coming. Now, I personally see the Feast of Trumpets pointing to the rapture of the church and God's resumption of his program for Israel. It begins the days of awe when God will again be actively intervening uh, in the uh, supernatural way. In fact, the signs described in Matthew 24 and Revelation 6 to 19 are those days of awe. I see the Day of Atonement pointing toward the time when God's promised new covenant will be fulfilled with Israel at his second coming. That's when they're going to look on him whom they've pierced and, and when the fountain will be open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity, the Zechariah 12 and 13. And finally, I see the Feast of Tabernacles being fulfilled in the Millennial Kingdom when Israel is completely regathered into the land and when the Gentiles will come to Jerusalem to worship the King of Kings. Now, my only hesitancy, though, is saying that the Feast have to be fulfilled on the very day that they're given in the Bible. Uh, now, that's true of the spring feast for the first coming, but I have a hesitancy when it comes to the fall. And here's why I say that. Jesus said to his followers, keep watch because you don't know on what day your Lord will come. Now, if the events surrounding his second coming are going to happen on those exact days, then it seems like those alive at the time would know the exact day of his return. Now, but apart from that, I do see these events lining up prophetically, pointing to his second coming, just like the spring feasts pointed to the events related to his first coming. Gary asks, Psalm 119 seems to have a strong focus on precepts. So my question is, what are the biblical precepts that we're to choose to follow? And the Bible also uses the word decrees. Is there a difference between these two words? Just what are biblical decrees? Yeah, in fact, including the word precept and decrees, the, that psalm also uses a number of other synonyms to stress the priority and the importance of God's word for our lives. The main Hebrew words that are used in that psalm, word, law, statutes, precepts, commands, ordinances, decrees, well, I think they all focus on the promises God has made to us and the requirements God has laid out for us. As a result, I don't believe we can connect the word precepts to any one specific set of commands. I think he's using all these synonyms to refer to the whole word of God. Uh, one suggestion I have is though, if you wanna know what the word precepts or other words mean, uh, look at the parallel part of each line where that word precept or one of the other words is used. For example, uh, the word precept is used in verse 15 and the next line it's parallel with says it's talking about God's ways and his wonders in verse 27 another parallel now observing and following God's precepts brings wisdom and understanding he says in verse 100 uh, it helps us avoid falsehoods he says in verses 104 and 128 so uh, my point is as you go through the psalm uh, look at the two lines that are together and then see what the line is that's parallel to precepts or decrees it'll help you get a fuller picture of what God is saying about his word in this amazing psalm you're listening to The Land of the Book with our host, Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, suggesting you check out our podcast. It's available at the website, thelandandthebook.org. Linny is studying 1 Samuel 4 and says, I know the Israelites are coming out of the period of the judges here where everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. So how often would the typical Israelite have heard the words of the Torah so that they would realize the holiness associated with the Ark of the Covenant. And what happened to hearing the word of God in the period of the judges? 
Yeah, we're not told how the typical Israelite would have heard the word of God at this time, but we do have some indirect hints. For example, we know God raised up prophets like the one who spoke against the house of Eli in 1 Samuel 2. Now, I assume there were very few copies of the law available during this time. The original copy written by Moses was likely still kept at the tabernacle with the expectation that the priests were to study it, copy it, and share what it said with the people. Now, at the same time, I assume portions of God's word were shared during the times when Israel gathered for the annual feasts. And as Deuteronomy 6 says, there was the expectation that parents were orally to be teaching God's word to their children. So there was likely some general understanding of what God's word said. One encouraging thing I see is in 1 Samuel 3, uh, verses 19 to 21, it says, The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. Now, even as the priests were failing in their responsibility to follow and teach God's written word, God raised up Samuel to be a prophet and judge to Israel. So God was making sure that his word got out. Got to slip in a question of my own here, Charlie. What will the role of Scripture be in heaven? Will we still be studying it, learning it? I ask against the backdrop of verses like Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. 1 Peter 1.25, the word of the Lord remains forever. Matthew 24.35, Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. What's the best explanation for the role of Scripture in eternity? Well, those scriptures are compelling in terms of suggesting what the role is in eternity. In fact, especially that Matthew 24, 35. Now, by way of a suggested answer, uh, here's what I would say. To the extent the law is a reflection of, of God's very character, I assume it must abide forever. You know, Paul said in Romans 7, 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. That is, what the law said was holy, righteous, and good because God is holy, righteous, and good. Uh, in Jeremiah 31, as part of the new covenant blessing, God said, I'm going to put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Uh, in Ezekiel 36, his version of it, he said it this way, I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Now, all that makes me think that part of our glorified body will include a mind that knows and understands and follows God's holy and righteous standards. Whether we continue to study God's word or simply understand it, well, that I don't know. But it does seem that God's word will be with us in eternity. Cheryl writes, a form of OCD is not wanting to be touched or to touch anyone else, and I'm not doing so well with my own personal recovery through this. So I'm studying scriptures that address the issue, and, and I'm wondering, will God hold this against me if I don't get beyond all this? Will he consider me as not one of his sheep, among those to be separated as chaff instead of wheat? Will I hear him say, depart from me, I never knew you? Yeah, I need to start by saying immediately, your eternal relationship with God is never dependent on what you do or what you don't do. Two passages of Scripture, I think, are, are crucial. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So if you place your faith in Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, you turn to him for forgiveness and salvation, your eternal destiny is secure. Uh, the other passage is 1 John 5, 11 to 13. God, it says, this is the testimony. God's given us eternal life. This life's in his son. He who has the son has life. He who doesn't have the son of God doesn't have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you might know you have eternal life. So if you've accepted Jesus, 
you have eternal life. And God promised, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Now, here's the other thing you need to know. This side of eternity, we all struggle. For some, it's physical issues. For others, it's emotional or psychological. But we all experience uh, problems. At the same time, we also experience some growth, development, and maturity as we progress in our walk of faith, though we still struggle. Uh, I find encouragement in what Paul said about his own struggles in Romans chapter 7, when he cries out, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? And then he gives the answer in Romans 8. In fact, what I'd suggest is read Romans chapter 8. It starts with no condemnation for those who are in Christ and ends with no separation. Uh, You might even want to memorize that chapter so you can call it to mind when times of doubt arise. And maybe you'd like to visit our website, thelandandthebook.org, where in the upper right-hand corner, you can click on the link there, How to Know Christ. Thanks for your questions, and Charlie's back with his devotional next. Welcome back to the land of the book. John Geiger here asking, are you a reader? Really a reader? Uh, One of my favorite authors is Charles Dickens. And without giving away too much of where Charlie's headed on his devotional, if you're a Dickens fan, you will especially appreciate his jumping off point in today's devotional. And if not, you'll be on board very quickly. I want to share with you first a Holy Land experience. Somebody who's traveled to the Holy Land and now comes back with a very unique perspective like this one. Hi, I'm Marion Wood from Homosassa, Florida. And uh, for me, I think it was visiting the seven churches, uh, the sites, and actually hearing uh, what Jesus had to say to each and every church and how uh, that can really come back and apply to the church uh, in America. Every single one of the churches, uh, the letters that Jesus wrote. I believe we can all hear that message and apply that to our churches at home. And then I think also for me, um, just understanding the Muslim religion and just their way of life, uh, to see it and hear it, uh, I have a much better understanding of that, and that's been very helpful. Thanks very much for sharing that very personal testimony. Charlie? Boy, I I, I love that Dickens novel, and I think it's got uh, something to do with your jumping-off point for today. It does. We're going to give him the Dickens today, John. Uh, No, seriously, (laughs) though. With apologies to Charles Dickens, I have titled my devotional for the next two weeks, actually, A Tale of Two Cities and Two Kings and Two Prophets. The cities are Jerusalem and Samaria. The kings are Jehoshaphat and Ahab. And the prophets are two that almost nobody's ever heard of, Micaiah and Jehu. The cities and kings are well-known, the prophets less so, but their stories and the lessons they teach are worthy of a Dickens novel. King Jehoshaphat ruled in Jerusalem. He's pictured as a good king, though he did make some foolish mistakes. During the first part of his reign, he served as co-regent with his father. After his father died, Jehoshaphat tried to follow the Lord, but he was young, inexperienced, and a bit naive. His counterpart in Samaria was King Ahab. Ahab was as different from Jehoshaphat as night is from day. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worship him. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Ahab was older, 
smarter, and far more evil than young Jehoshaphat. Apart from a shared ethnic identity, they seemed to share little in common. That is, until Jehoshaphat made a stupid blunder. He was a good king, but he felt as if his nation was vulnerable to attack. So he tried to strengthen his defenses by making an alliance with Ahab and the northern kingdom of Israel. He arranged for his son to marry the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. Later, that same daughter tried to destroy the entire line of David and forced the kingdom of Judah to worship Baal. But Jehoshaphat wasn't looking that far ahead. He was only thinking about a common defensive alliance. What harm could it do? As it turned out, it nearly cost Jehoshaphat his life. The mutual defense pact pledged each king to come to the aid of the other. But the one who needed help first was Ahab. So he asked Jehoshaphat to come to Samaria for a visit. The older, more crafty king carefully arranged all the details for the impending state visit. Jehoshaphat went down to visit Ahab at Samaria. And Ahab slaughtered many sheep and oxen for him and the people who were with him and induced him to go up against Ramoth Gilead. Ahab king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat king of Judah, Will you go with me against Ramoth Gilead? And he said to him, I am as you are, and my people is your people. We will be with you in battle. Jehoshaphat agreed to fight, but felt they ought to seek God's favor before launching this military adventure. Specifically, he asked that they seek the counsel of the Lord. He used the word Yahweh, the covenant-keeping name for the true God of Israel. Ahab brought together the prophets, 400 men. No doubt these were the 400 prophets of Baal. Just a few years earlier, Elijah had faced a similar number of Baal's prophets on Mount Carmel and had ordered their execution. But there must have been quite a few junior prophets more than willing to step into those now vacant places in the king's official entourage. The 400 prophets put on a colorful and entertaining show, and the purpose for it all was to convince Jehoshaphat that God was indeed behind the venture. But Jehoshaphat, maybe feeling just a twinge of uneasiness, asked Ahab, Is there not yet a prophet of Yahweh here that we may inquire of him? Don't miss that one key detail. The 400 prophets were calling on God, but Jehoshaphat asked if there was a prophet of Yahweh to whom they could inquire. An awkward silence must have ensued until Ahab finally turned and said, There's yet one man by whom we may inquire of Yahweh, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but always evil. He's Micaiah, son of Imlah. Micaiah was summoned, and true to form, he predicted disaster for this military alliance. Micaiah's prophecy is worth a study all its own. He describes a scene in heaven where God works through the spiritual forces to lure Ahab to his death at Ramoth Gilead. Needless to say, Micaiah's message wasn't appreciated. He was thrown into prison and the two kings decided to move forward with their attack. And that's where one twist in the story impresses me. Good King Jehoshaphat was the one who asked for a prophet from the Lord. But having heard the message, he didn't follow it. Evidently, the impressive performance of the other prophets overcame his initial reluctance. But wicked King Ahab did pay attention to this prophet. Oh, he didn't listen enough to call off the attack, but he decided that if God was out to get him, he would make himself a much smaller target. Ahab made a suggestion to young Jehoshaphat. I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you put on your robes. 
Now stop and think about that for a minute. Wouldn't you smell a rat if you were Jehoshaphat? Maybe Ahab tricked him with flattery. I'm an old war veteran. You're still untested. I'll tell you what. Let's feature you as the head of the army. I'll blend into the background, and that way you can get all the credit for the victory. It'll look good on your resume. Naive Jehoshaphat goes along with the idea, and it nearly costs him his life. What he didn't know, and perhaps what Ahab did from previous experience, was that the king of Aram had a rather unique battle plan. His goal was to go after the leadership rather than engaging in an all-out battle. Cut off the head, and the body will stop fighting. So he told his forces to look for the top dog and go after him. And of course, who's the only guy around riding in his chariot wearing purple robes and a crown? Jehoshaphat. When the enemy saw Jehoshaphat, they assumed it was the king of Israel, and they started after him. Thankfully, God intervened to protect Jehoshaphat from his own foolishness. Meanwhile, Ahab was riding around in his chariot, not being molested by enemy forces, until a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel in a joint of the armor. Some not-so-smart Aramean disobeyed his commander's orders and randomly fired toward the Israelite lines. He aimed at no one in particular, but that one errant arrow happened to strike King Ahab and it happened to strike him at the one place where there was a gap between two sections of his armor. Coincidence? I think not. Ahab bled to death in his chariot. Jehoshaphat managed to escape and make it back to Jerusalem. And Micaiah the prophet? Well, we're never told the end of the story. Was he released from prison, or was he murdered by those angered over the truth of his prediction? We simply don't know. So what lessons can we carry away from this first tale of two cities and two kings and two prophets? Not surprisingly, I see two lessons. First, as I compare Jehoshaphat and Ahab, I see an amazing study in contrasts. One king was good, but very naive. One king was evil, but very clever. One should have died, but didn't. One shouldn't have died, but did. And that says to me that we need to strive to be both godly and wise. Just because you're a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that you need to be naive or foolish. And second, I see a haunting lesson from the life of Micaiah the prophet. That lesson is the importance of standing firm, even if it means standing alone. We don't know what happened to Micaiah. His fate isn't important to the story, but his faith and courage are. And the same needs to be true of us today. We need to stand true for God, whatever the consequences. Thanks for that great reminder, Charlie. Our website is thelandandthebook.org, where you can hear today's program again. Information about our guests, past programs, and future programs, all at thelandandthebook.org. Time's gone. I'm John Geiger. Thanks for listening to The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.